Welcome to the LaSallian Way Online, a digital series produced by Christian Brothers University's Center for Digital Instruction in Memphis, Tennessee. In each episode, we focus on topics in online education and approach them from the LaSallian tradition. St. John Baptist de LaSalle created a culture of student-centered teaching and learning focused on transforming the whole person. We aspire to follow the LaSallian Way online. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the LaSallian Way Online. So happy that you joined us. I'm Dr. Dale Hale. I am the Dean of the Global College and also the Director of the Center for Digital Instruction at Christian Brothers University. I'm joined by the CDI team, the Center for Digital Instruction, which is made up of Dr. Lorraine Kelly, um, soon to be Dr. Chantel Bryant, Mr. Scott McPherson, and Mr. John Kohlenberg. Uh, Chantel, Scott, and John are instructional designers, and Loreen is the Director of Academic Operations and Student Success for the Global College. That said, we're happy that you're, that you're joining us today. November 30th, uh, there was a huge splash made uh, by something called ChatGPT. Prior to that, um, there has always been this kind of discussion going on about artificial intelligence and how it will impact, especially how it will impact uh, education, academics. Uh, and today, we're joined by one of Christian Brothers' very own uh, faculty members, Dr. Drew Hampton. We're pleased that he has joined us today because he has written a book recently that is entitled The Front Lines of Artificial Intelligence Ethics, Human-Centric Perspectives on Technologies Advance. It's published by Rutledge. We're glad that you're with us, Drew. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You bet. So this whole subject of artificial intelligence is intriguing, especially with ChatGPT coming along uh, and really... Uh, Clayton Christensen's disrupting something. It has disrupted education, and people are reeling. Faculty are reeling all over the place. Uh, just recently, we hosted, the CDI team hosted something that we called a community of inquiry for our faculty. Uh, and it was very um, apparent that we had a lot of faculty that are very distrusting of, of this, of chat GPT and artificial intelligence. But I watched and have gone back and reread uh, some of the discussion that was going on on the side. And Drew, you you have a different perspective about all of this stuff, artificial intelligence. How do you see it impacting uh, our world, uh, this our academic world? How do you see it impacting that? So I think if I if I made specific predictions, uh, I would just be making it up. Um, there is way too much chaos in the environment right now to know what the education world is going to look like, uh, even really a couple of years down the line. What I think we can rely on, why I think I was, say, the more optimistic voice in that chat, was that if we fall back on our foundations, what we're actually trying to do uh, in the higher edu in the education field in general is is safe it's something that people still want the way that we do it is going to change in the way that it always has changed so the resistance 
to change is, is natural. And, and you see that all the time. Like you saw when cars overtook uh, horse-drawn carriages, you know, we saw the same kind of, of panic from the people that drove horses. Um, but we are not, <laughs> I hope, going to be in that same position of obsolescence. I think that we uh, educators still have an important role to play. It's just not in grading papers uh, necessarily. And I think that can largely be a good thing. The, the goal of any technological advance is that it frees us to pursue the more human um, targets, the more human goals, the more human pursuits. And I don't know if grading papers was the top of anybody's list of things they love to do as an educator. It's, it's not mine. Um, and even then, it's, it's something that I can still contribute to beyond what certainly what AI can do now. Uh, but going forward, uh, there's, there's value in the human insight. There's value in working with the AI. I don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, but I, I certainly know it can make aspects of our job a lot easier. Yeah, I think you you touched on it. Um, the whole subject of Luddites uh, hating hating the the introduction of the printing press and all those other things that would have made their lives so much better, and yet they rejected it because it was change. And you know, sometimes we think of of people getting stuck in in their way of life, even though that way of life could be very hazardous for them, and yet that's what they know. And so what you're asking us to do, Drew, is is to is to kind of shake loose of of maybe what that what the world is, what it's always been, and maybe look forward to how we can ad adapt uh, into something different. Am I interpreting that right i think that's yes that's that's the the essence of it i like that you brought up the luddites um because we we tend to use luddites as as just the people that resisted change because it was change the luddites had a very particular agenda they didn't like the printing press because it decentralized power uh, all of the power was was very centralized in a very small number of people who were literate who could tell you the truth and you had no way to check it so that distribution of power uh, was something that they that they weren't ready for and that they were the ones losing the majority of that power. They weren't fighting against change for its own sake. They were fighting for their own livelihoods. And I think that's the that's the fear a lot of people have is what's my job going to be in 10 years, in five years? Uh, do I Am I going to need to go back to school in order to learn how to do things entirely differently? Is the world going to change in such a way that I am left behind? And I think that's a very real fear for a lot of people. Uh, I, I also think it gives us a tremendous amount of opportunity, particularly for the youngest generation, to define their own world, to use technology in ways that we haven't considered. The people who built the technology haven't considered how it's going to be used, which is exceptionally dangerous, but it's also very, very exciting that it's it's a new, really, in the last couple of months, this is a new era of human creativity based on being freed from a lot of the monotony, a lot of the uh, the, the more menial writing skills, if, if you can call it that, that is also very scary because we can and probably will see a lack of emphasis on those skills that we need to build on top of. So in my writing classes, I, I'm teaching four classes, all of which have a writing component to them. I have to start these writing assignments, making the case for writing as a human skill, that it's not just 
you think and then put it on the paper. The process of putting it on the paper is the process of thinking, of formalizing your own understanding of the world, of your problem. So that form of construction, of knowledge construction through writing, maintains its integrity, its importance, despite the fact that we could offload it. Thanks, Drew. The the whole team, feel free to join in here. I, I do want to go back to um, to that what you were talking about with the Luddites. I think I think we really are on a new place or in a new place with this introduction of Chat GPT and 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 a deeper dive into artificial intelligence by um, finding a new way of gaining information. So it's it's the printing press all over again, but in a in a much more updated package, and which which I gotta admit, in that new package is a little frightening. Who do you trust and how do you trust it? That's that's a that's a scary place and that's kind of what this podcast is about. How do we make sure that what we're doing um, is not left up to the whole term of artificial intelligence is artificial. It's artificial. It's not real. It's not in. So we have to we have to get beyond that and to try to figure out how the ethics work in this. Drew, Drew, are you really? Um, this is Lorraine Kelly, and um, after we uh, had that that meeting with faculty and just in what you were saying. You know, I've been I've been watching more articles about uh, Chat GTP and how professors are using it, and I find it really interesting because I think one of the things that we always say, uh, particularly about the American educational system, is that it doesn't emphasize critical thinking too often. That you know, it's like write a ten-page paper, uh, you know, have this many points, uh, you know, those kind of things, and uh, this is the number count of words. And these exercises that I'm seeing are really exciting, like where ChatGTP is the starting point. And from there, you really have to be, you have to go deeper because it is certainly possible and you probably see it all the time where someone writes a paper, it's 10 pages and there's really no original thought in there. They're just going over the same topic that you've read over and over and over again. And this to me is really exciting um, that students can just be taking it to this whole other level that regular paper never would have done? Uh, That is entirely possible. I worry a lot about which aspects of the writing process they might offload. They might think, oh, I'll just get that 10-page paper and and I'll edit it from there. Um, That is, in all honesty, that's probably something I would have tried as an undergrad. Let's save myself a bunch of time uh, and I'll still get, you know, it's it's not cheating because I came in at the end and, and the final product is my work. So I worry a lot about how we accommodate that, how we uh, anticipate that. But it certainly op- opens up some possibilities for creative collaboration with artificial intelligence. And you're right, we have a lack of critical thinking. Um, I, I, while you were talking, like four examples jumped into my head from this week of my students uh, doing that kind of thing of turning in a, a, a preliminary paper for um, a class And my feedback was essentially, this was a fine enough exercise that you've done, but why did you do it? What what is the value of the paper that you've written? And that is that that extra step, that critical thinking step of, it's not just like, show me that you understand these terms and can put them into action, but like create a a comprehensive 
idea that advances our collective knowledge about this. That is not something that comes naturally to our students. I had a an hour and a half ago, we were working through research questions in my uh, research methods class. And they're showing me their research questions. I'm kind of turning them inside out. This is why that might not work. Is there a psychological concept that's underpinning why you thought the relationship might be there? Maybe it's the turning it over, looking at it from different angles. Class ends and the student gets up and says something like, when do we get to the point where we're able to do that, to, to turn those research questions over and, and find the core of them? And I said, are you asking me when you get the mind of a professional scientist? And she was, that was, that was the question. <laughs> so I said, uh, sooner is better. We'll, we'll, we'll keep working on it. So that critical thinking is, is not something that's built into a lot of our syllabi. And I think it's going to, uh, as you kind of pointed out, it's going to free us. The artificial intelligence as an aid can free us to focus on that very human aspect of education and of, uh, of human work, you know. Hi, Drew. This is Chantel Bryant. Um, I love something that you just mentioned. You said that um, when you start your courses, you go, you just, you just hit this topic straight on. Uh, and I really love that because sometimes when we have new things to pop up, um, and I remember something from my history as a teacher and you know, we might, you know, move to the left or to the right, but not hit it straight on. And you sound like you're just going in, everybody take hands and let's jump in the pool. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask how, when you're making that case for writing as a human construct, a skill that we should um, or can develop as humans um, and why students should should want to do that, what type of activities are you doing at the beginning with students um, that are helping them to explore that idea? So I tell them straight, you mentioned uh, attacking it head on, and I say, you could probably turn in an AI written paper and get away with it at the beginning of the semester. Um, a month or two in, if you turn that paper in, I've had conversations with you and A isn't matching B. So that's that's not something that you can really hide behind, uh, especially at CBU. I have my biggest class is eight people. You, you don't have a lot of numbers to hide behind. So I, I make it very clear that it's not just me saying this thinking by virtue of writing is a skill. I'm, it's visible. You can see it. I'm looking at it. The difference between your writing and what you can construct in conversation is apparent. And that's because you didn't do the work. Uh, you didn't spend the time in the weight room and it's showing on the field. That kind of analogy is, is what I'm attempting to show them. And I also try to, particularly in the research methods class, step through not just, hey, turn in a paper at the end of the month. Let's spend literally a month developing your thesis statement and make sure that's good. Because if you have a good thesis statement, the rest of the stuff is going to follow so much easier. You're going to waste a lot less time throwing things in that aren't relevant or structuring your paper badly. And then me just telling you once the paper is submitted, hey, this is organized badly. It should fall. It should be apparent to you when you look at it. Oh, if I'm telling this story, then it should have been structured differently. That information is tangential. It's irrelevant. I need another piece of information to, in order to bolster this, to, to drive the idea home. So if I break it down step by step and also just lay out what my end criteria are for evaluating this relative to your understanding, 
then hopefully, and this is the first semester in the chat GPT world, so I'm just <laughs> doing the best I can, but that is the, the general approach that I have. I love it. One thing it sounds like I hear you saying is that um, learning and, and teaching even, there are many pieces to it. It's not all one thing. And so um, chat GPT can be a tool you know, that we are accessing and using in this, you know, conglomeration. It's not all one thing. And also um, that the human, the human element, the interaction between learners and instructors and learners and learners, that's something that is another element that we're using as well. So it, it's, it feels a little less scary to think of it that way, um, that it's many pieces and not just everything is not riding on one thing and that that one thing can ruin <laughs> everything. There are many pieces. Yeah, completely. Uh, specialization is for insects. We are we are built to be uh, dynamic thinkers, lots of different areas. Hi, Drew. It's Scott McPherson. Um, I wanted to touch base with you about your book. Um, looking at it, one of the things that I found really interesting was uh, Nick Bostrom and the Don't Blow Up the World camp. Can you talk about that a little <laughs> bit? Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at his book on my shelf right now. It's called Superintelligence, and he does an excellent job of delineating all of the potential pathways for greater than human intelligence in artificial intelligence and how all of those things could kill us. Um, very systematic, very thorough, and it's worth reading. It's, it's important work, but assuming it doesn't kill us all, we still have to live with AI right now. So we should probably worry about that too. So we are using AI all the time. We are using AI to uh, get directions to a new restaurant. We're using AI to ask what the weather is going to be from our voice assistant at home or on our phone or, or, or whatever. That is changing the way that we perceive the world. It is changing the way that we interact with our environment at a very real, very casual way. So that needs to be understood. So that was kind of the, the impetus for the book was just like, well, maybe we need to consider the human perspective. Maybe not just the don't blow up the world. Maybe not just the economic impact of job displacement. Uh, those are important. Yes, we need to consider those. But also we need to consider what happens when your kid asks a robot why the sky is blue instead of you, the parent. That's a, that's a pretty big change that their default understanding of, you know, the immutable knowledge of the universe is no longer mom or dad at least potentially. So that's a big shift and we need to understand it. That was how we started this conversation. With Bostrom having like, let's not blow up the world and then thinking about the Luddites and having that centralized power, you're on the front lines, right? The book says the front lines of ethics of artificial intelligence. It seems that AI has just been let out and it's just running rampant and there's no one really kind of watching the guardrails of what it can do or can't do. Who do you see that could get out and start to put those guardrails and maybe act like uh, the Luddites and want control and say, well, the AI, the chat box, the language models are using these areas to pull their references from. Let's Let's delete that out of its databank so it doesn't have references to those text or articles or journals. Can you expound on that? That's the part maybe I'm least optimistic about is that there will be guardrails, that they will be placed intelligently 
Um, I, asking the government to do it, I think, is is problematic because our, our lawmakers aren't experts in technology. And asking the technology people to do it is not probably very good because they are fighting for market share. That's their primary goal. So where we uh, where we wrote about this in the book, the first kind of third of it is looking for historical foundations for any kind of analog or existing work that we could rely on. Uh, and we had a, a professor of law talking about um, privacy in, uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the acronym right now, but the kind of baseline internet privacy protocols that have been implemented uh, more or less worldwide. And that's, you know, we get everybody together and decide these are these are basic rules. And that's a really great thing that we can do unless the technology is moving faster than we're able to acknowledge it and, and account for it. Uh, others were historical precedents where things have gone off the rails. The uh, IBM was built around the idea of tabulation, of more, much more efficient ways to tabulate populations. And pretty much immediately, the Germans had some not so great ideas on how to use that. And IBM, being a company that was interested in, in market share, essentially collaborated. They went along with it. This is the company that still exists, was built on selling their technology to people who were using it for mass murder. That's the disconnect that we have is the, the pursuit of technological advancement without moral restraint. So we acknowledge those things in the book. And, and I guess my personal philosophy as well is uh, advocate for those things where you can, but we educators, especially have actual sphere of influence that we can make a difference. We can change how this is impacting our lives, our students' lives, uh, and try to use this technology responsibly. That's that's a, I love what you just said. That's important uh, for us to get a handle on, um, and I think I think that actually even speaks to the whole, um, con the the fear that comes along with artificial intelligence from those that have a hard time accepting it, and it's the fear, well, at least some of it, it's the fear that. It'll get out of control, and who can who can believe anything? But as as ele as intelligent people, we need to be training our students, and even those in the sphere sphere of our influence, how to go about figuring these things out. How you know all during the the last presidential election and all of the uproar that has happened over Twitter and. Facebook and all this stuff, we're trying to regulate who gets to say what, when, without being on the political bandwagon at this point. That's not the that's not where I'm wanting to go. If we can if we can be at the place where we can say intelligently discern good information from bad information, learn how to find that stuff. If that's if that's where we can go as educators. Then I think we're in a we're in a, a pretty good place. We can say, let this stuff come. It's all right. Bring it on, um, and we're gonna we're gonna learn how to make it work for us for the good. I, I totally agree. We we fall back on our principles when we don't know what the specific situation calls for. We fall back on our principles, and if that's critical thinking, I think that's a pretty safe uh, place to fall back. Hello, Drew. This this is John Kohlenberg. Um, glad glad you you jumped on it. This uh, actually 
made me think of a few few items. So when we, we started thinking about artificial intelligence and in, in the education environment, right? Um, and you addressing it head on with your student. Have you had the conversation of how they can bridge the gap in their learning um, by using artificial intelligence um, to maybe use that as a paper to be their baseline and, and to compare back and forth with what they're developing? Have you had any conversation or any thoughts around how that could be leveraged? I've talked to other educators who've done similar things. I am kind of waiting for the dust to settle before I change my my curricula, just because I, I'm not sure what's going to work yet. I have had good success with the way that I teach it. I understand that's going to change in the future, um, but I don't know if I, uh, other than addressing it head on, if I have a good way to incorporate AI uh, directly now. So I've seen the, this is an AI generated paper and we critique it. And I think that's, that has value. You know, what is the, the human element, element of writing that is missing from this paper? Uh, I also think that that is going to be a lot harder to discern in ChatGPT 2.0 or, or whatever comes next because they are working on it. Absolutely. They are, they are learning from every paper that they generate and from the feedback they get from those things. So yes, that's a, a valuable exercise. I'm not sure that I want it to be a part of my classroom right now. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that that kind of creativity, what can I use this for? How can I make my students' educational experience richer or more vibrant, more, more current? is the right instinct. I'm happy for the people who are experimenting with it. Yeah, I think, um, Drew, this is Lorreen Kelly again. And, um, you know, I think we always say this with online, with trying to find the things that work with the medium. So, you know, there are some things that maybe a student can watch a recorded video about, or they can look at an infographic, or they can read this article. And, and then what it does is maybe you have some synchronous times where you're meeting in person and you can use that time for relationship building or um, to really work together as a team on something. Uh, and I, I, was, I was talking to a professor at, here at CBU about um, the implications of AI and, you know, not only having papers written, but now uh, Scott actually demonstrated to us how you could program a video with a uh, an avatar that is now using the material that you generated on ChatGTP to make this video with a person that looks real. And um, so he was saying, you know, wow, like, what would that be like if I could have someone that looked like me and, and that and that time that I might spend creating my videos, now I, I, I can create those short videos in the time space that, you know, the five to 10 minutes that are great for attention span get to the points that I need to, but then I'm spending the rest of my time really developing what I'm doing, creating deeper relationships with my students, um, that this has, just like your, this ability to free yourself with technology to attend to the more human um, elements is, I just, I just really love that sentiment. And even when he was saying that, I didn't, when you said that, that's just kind of like, wow, that, that would be incredible. Yeah, any anytime we can offload our work, that <laughs> that creates an opportunity for us to work differently, not just less. Less is nice too, but differently is is great to at least uh, consider. I don't know if you if you all remember when Wikipedia came out. We as a team we've talked about this, but when Wikipedia came out, 
Drew, you, you, I'm sure, will remember it was off limits for anybody trying to do any kind of research at all, period. Stay away from it. Um, don't use it. Stay away. Um, today, well, as of, I think it was about a year, year and a half ago, that there was a comparison uh, between uh, Encyclopedia Britannica and Wikipedia. And they discovered that Wikipedia was more trustworthy than Encyclopedia Britannica. That's impressive. Now, a question for you, Drew. Do you think, I'm, I'm setting you up, I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you think we're going to get to the place where chat GPT and artificial intelligence, whatever that becomes, will be the will be in the same place where where we'll see a lot more trust and confidence in in what it's producing and figuring out how to to deploy it to the good instead of being ruled by it is that is that a possibility down the road i think it's an inevitability that we get to a point where we we can't recognize the difference between human and, and ai productions I, I imagine that's the case in many fields already, you know, AI generated contracts, um, housing contracts, people are using chat GPT to level the playing field with landlords, which is, uh, it's, it's a decentralization of power. Once again, it's a way to, um, I hate to say democratize that power, but essentially, yeah, we're, we're putting the potential for, um, you said use for the good we're, we have the potential to do that. Uh, it is a tool, and it's going to be used how people use it. It's uh, it's an open-ended tool. So we're definitely going to see and have already seen very beneficial leveling of playing fields that had been skewed for a very long time. We're also going to see irresponsible use of it. These, these things are both inevitable. So the distinction of can I tell it's, it's human or not is going to get harder and harder uh, as we get into kind of less well-defined fields. So like contract law is, is a very well-defined in terms of like writing skills. Generative, so like poems or something like that would be harder to tell because it has less structure to fall back on. Um, research reports would be harder to tell because it requires original insight in order for it to contribute to our understanding. But are people going to use it for good and for evil? Yes. Drew, I wanted to ask you a, a couple more questions about theories in your book in regards to online education. Uh, you talk about the growth of distance learning and the introduction of AI agents into the online learning environment and how that will affect the next generations of learners. Can you talk about uh, what, what is discourse learning and, and how do you see the future being affected? So I think this is a place where we really have the opportunity to emphasize that critical thinking component in a way that hasn't been previously. The gold standard of education, we've often considered, at least in this field, to be one-on-one -on -one tutoring because you get individual feedback right away from an expert. Obvious problems with that are it's extremely expensive. There's not that many experts. There's a ton of students. So it's, it's asymmetrical. If we can, for example, with ChatGPT, but also with these kind of uh, artificial agents, conversational agents, kind of anticipate the sorts of questions that students will ask and anticipate the mistakes that they make to various degrees with artificial intelligence or kind of pre-planned decision tree or some combination therein, then we can have the approximation of one-on-one -on -one 
tutoring, expert to, to student tutoring, without requiring that level of human uh, capital, that human engagement, which could create a situation in which relatively lower level, but still requiring critical thinking topics, all of a sudden have a conversational component to them where you are having a real conversation with an expert AI. Uh, and we can make those animated and, and human looking to varying degrees, whatever we think is, is most useful so that it feels very human. But if you take that a step further, probably you would want to have a human in the loop. So we talk about this potential mechanism where a virtual classroom, you're a student at home, whatever, you're in front of a laptop, and you're interacting with a, an AI agent or an, an agent, and you don't know if that agent is a human expert or the AI. That could create a situation where if you distrust AI, well, it could be the human instructor. And hopefully they're giving similar information. They're, they're able to act as kind of a force multiplier, where a single human can bounce around from different interactions without the need for kind of formal introduction or, or exits to that conversation. And they can monitor a lot of different conversations simultaneously. Maybe those agents are actually playing the role of a peer so that we can have the, hey, let's work on this together. And it doesn't feel like it's asymmetrical. It doesn't feel like I'm being sort of scolded for not knowing the answer better. Maybe that dynamic is more helpful for something where you need trial and error. You need to engage with the content and figure it out iteratively. So this creativity that's enabled by having dynamic environments, not necessarily all human, not necessarily all AI, but some sort of blended, gives you a lot of opportunities for creative pedagogical construction, uh, but also a lot of ethical issues for that. Is it okay that a student doesn't know if they're talking to a human or an AI? Is this recorded? Is this used for optimization? Is this identifiable information? So we can be as creative as we want, but we need to do that responsibly and keep in mind the rights uh, of the students and the responsibilities of the educators. I will say when you were saying that, I'm thinking of my teenage son being very excited to be able to pick out the skin for an avatar that's going to be like tutoring him. Like he'd be much more excited to learn from something, someone he created. Uh, and I, I think that would be because it matters so much when they pick out if it's a peer or if they relate to the person uh, in, in the in just accepting the tutoring. So. Sure. Professor Leon James, uh, LeBron James, you know, let's let's just get celebrities to sponsor teachers. And then it feels like they're your, um, I don't know, chemical engineering PhD. Yeah. It, it, you know, that's it's, it's interesting, John Colenberg, again, um, it's interesting what you just said, Lorraine, just kind of jog my, my thought process. Thinking about the uh, individ individualization of education right now, being able to diversify that that same lesson to everybody in that classroom without having to rewrite this as an instructor for each student in there, utilizing AI to be able to fill in those gaps. So it, it, it gives you almost an opportunity to accelerate the learning of those students in that classroom if, if it's, if it's uh, structured and utilized uh, to the max, I guess, in that particular area. Because if you think about it, we've been We've been using Siri, Alexa, and all of these different different AI uh, uh, applications for years, and it's never been a concern until we start talking about <laughs> them writing papers and not knowing is the is the key to what you, exactly what you said, Drew. You don't know if this is 
authentic work by that person or are you talking to a machine that's learning from everybody else? And that seems to be where some of the challenges are. But I would love to see when we get to that point where you can see that individualized training occurring in those classes. Yeah, absolutely. And we developed at University of Memphis when I was there a system just like this, except it took us, you know, three years and, and a couple million dollars and, and a whole bunch of experts in the field uh, in order to make, I think it was 15 modules that were relatively constrained about electrical engineering. So this is a good answer. It has five components to it. We can recognize in, in natural language. They got three of them. They missed two. They kind of got one of them. So we can prompt them for a little more information. And that level of specificity of intentional uh, conversational diagramming and a lot of that is going to be offloaded to AI. So that construction of new interactive material that feels very uh, personalized, that is in fact very personalized, is very possible and that will lower the barrier to the construction of that information. The, the number they used to throw out was 100 hours of expert time for one hour of uh, interactive content. So 100 to one. And I got to think that number is already a lot lower just since November. Yes, I love that you said that because what was uh, what I was thinking of with what you said and then piggybacking off of Lorene and then John, it it feels like um, we've just tapped in on a more efficient way to retrieve information, um, a more efficient way, <laughs> um, because I don't you know, we have the we have information at our fingertips and we have Siri and we have. Alexa and all of these things, but I don't have time to go around <laughs> grabbing all of the pieces of, of, of information that I need all of the time. And it just seems like we've just taken a little bit of a step up in um, just kind of smoothing out that process, you know, just making it a little bit easier. Like you said, pulling down some more of the barriers. Yeah. So if we think of the analogy of, of a, like a calculator, a fifth grader might reasonably ask their math teacher, like, why do I have to learn all of this? Uh, and for, for a long time, the teacher would say, well, you're not going to carry a calculator with you everywhere you go. Uh, jokes on them because we all do. Uh, but we, we still need to know how to do basic math. So if we can just make that case, as you pointed out, like you need these skills. These, these are not just skills that are very specialized. These are general skills for critical thinking, for problem solving, that we are using writing as the tool to hone. You need to know how to do that. Yeah, you can maybe use the AI and, and it's accessible and, and great. We can offload a lot of these, this kind of menial work, but the skill needs to be there. This is important. And we need to make that case to our students that this is not something that is offloadable as a human enterprise. Drew, what's the, I'm, I'm going to step into something that will probably show my ignorance here. What is the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning? Uh, yeah, so this is a really common mis or misunderstanding. Artificial intelligence doesn't have a really good definition. It's incredibly broad. It's just anything that looks smart that isn't organic, that isn't a, a creature, uh, a human usually, but you know, a, a dog has intelligence as well. That's not artificial. So machine learning is a kind of, it's a tool within the umbrella of artificial intelligence. Machine learning is where you get a very powerful computer and just say, map this very complex domain and give me an answer. Whatever input I have, give me an answer. What optimizes this situation? The problem with, well, there are a bunch of problems, but the big problem with machine learning is that it's what we call black box. We don't know what's in that analysis. 
we don't have a good understanding of the relationships, of the weights of those relationships that are dictating what the output is to our given input. And we can't necessarily adjust those things. Sometimes we can, we just fiddle stuff around to try to, to change the output that we're getting. But a lot of times this is so complex that it's beyond our human comprehension what the mechanism of understanding is. And even if we did go in and adjust certain parameters to try to fix a certain outcome, it's like water looking for the lowest plane. You know, it's going to find that path of least resistance through the domain that we've given it. So we block a certain path, it's going to find a way around it. It's going to reconst uh, reconstruct whatever we found problematic a lot of the time. So machine learning as a, as a brute force way to find our way through a complicated domain can be really helpful, but it's not generally going to add to our human understanding, at least not directly. It might give us an answer that we really didn't expect, and then we can try to reconstruct what is the logic that allows this answer to come from that input. And sometimes we can learn really interesting things from that. But more often, at least in the industrial field, it's how many pounds should we put on this plane relative to fuel? What is the safety outcome? Uh, things like that. Uh, uh, sorry, what's the word? Um, there's like a whole field, and I'm just blanking on it, uh, where you try to make a, a system function as smoothly, as efficiently as possible. And we don't particularly care what the insight behind that is. We just let it run and trust the machine to have found that path of least resistance. So would you say is that chat GPT is a product of machine learning or is it a product of artificial intelligence? Both. So it uses machine learning. Uh, essentially what happens is we give it millions and millions of documents and we tag those either artificially or like humans, or we just have them automatically tagged as this is a college essay, this is a lease document, this is whatever. It pulls out on its own important features. So we call this feature extraction. And it won't even name these features. It just says these things tend to run together. So it seems to be a variable. And then it decides how often different variables go together. What seem to be patterns that never occur? What are the most popular patterns, what are the things that tend to happen? It's going to try to define, to understand, uh, for lack of a better word, the entire domain that we've given it. It wants to find the model that best fits our parameters, what we have put in, and then it's going to generate. So the, the prompts that we put in, it's going to match those as best it can against those tags, those features that it has extracted from absorbing that massive corpus of text and then spit out the, the path of least resistance, the thing that seems to match the parameters best. And what we call that process artificial intelligence. Machine learning is the, let's say, the engine that drives the artificial intelligence car. That reminds me of a conversation I had with my wife earlier today, and we were talking about machine learning and AI and how one of the, uh, I guess, queries it was fed is how to tell the difference between dogs and wolves. And the computer came to the conclusion that if it was in snow, it was most likely a wolf. So anything that was in the snow <laughs> was a wolf. And then even if it was a dog. So it was like the easiest for it to assume. But again, you got to have those parameters somehow, right? 
Yeah, that, that gets really tricky because our human understanding of the world that we all agree on and we're perfectly fine with doesn't necessarily match the objective parameters. There was a, a famous story that circulated online a while ago about uh, this retiring um, ichthyologist, a fish scientist. And, you know, doctor, in your 50 years of experience, what have you learned about fish? And he said, well, I learned that fish don't exist. Fish are not a, a, a real thing. We, we just call things fish. But if we consider this group of things, fish, that you and I and all humans would, that's, that's obviously a fish. It has nothing to do with this other thing that we also consider to be a fish. If we called that a fish, then squirrels would be fish. And that obviously doesn't make sense. So the, the, the classification that we're all fine with, we, we know what fish are, uh, doesn't exist. It's, it's a convenience thing that uh, has no bearing, uh, has no basis in biological fact. So, yeah, our human understanding is not uh, logical in many cases, but we're all sort of fine with that. And the AI isn't going to understand why we're all fine with that. So we're going to get some odd answers every once in a while. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> it's, it's cool that you explained it that way. I was just thinking of uh, the AI can only, it can only work with what we've given it. And, and then it's going to, you know, there are these parameters that you know, there's always going to be quirks there. <laughs> I want to thank you, Drew, for, for joining us uh, today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been an insightful discussion for us, and I'm trusting it will be um, an insightful discussion for others to, to listen to and, and glean from. Uh, I neglected to tell um, our listeners who Dr. Uh, Hampton is. Uh, he is an assistant professor of psychology at Christian Brothers. Uh, here in Memphis, he has served as the project manager on the pioneering hybrid tutor project, Electronics Tutor. He's the chair of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Standards Association. It's a working group for adaptive instructional systems and He's also the project co-leader for a novel form of conversation-based AI learning and engagement called TalkShop. Um, so again, Drew, thank you for um, joining us. If anybody is interested in Dr. Hampton's book, again, it is entitled The Front Lines of Artificial Intelligence Ethics, Human-Centric Perspectives on Technologies Advanced. It's published by Rutledge. Um, we will include in, uh, in our show notes a link to the flyer that will provide a 20% discount uh, for Drew's book if anybody's interested. Uh, excuse me. Everyone should be interested. Go get that book. It will be well worth your time, well worth your effort. We don't have any idea what's going to happen next in this really um, exploding world of artificial intelligence. It's been around for a long time, years, but with the, the birth of ChatGPT back in November, uh, it has really exploded and taken our, our uh, world, especially in academics, taken it by storm. We don't know what will happen next, but I can tell you that We'll do our best to stay on top of it and in front of it and do our best to explain what we're seeing and how it can be used uh, for education and for life in general. 
I want to say again, thank you, Drew, for joining us on behalf of CBU CDI team. Thanks for being here, and we hope you'll continue with us on this journey as we seek to bring the Salian way online.